Good morning. Good morning. My name is Corey Bradley. Um, I uh, have the opportunity to be on our teaching team here at Regen. My family and I have been coming for, for quite some time. And over the next uh, two to three hours, I'll preach a sermon. Um, <laughs> just kidding, you can relax. We're not going to be here that long. Um, but I, I, uh, as the uh, preaching team and, and myself, we've had this opportunity to teach on uh, a series of the parables, the parables of Jesus called Heaven on Earth, where we're really discussing what the parables meant to the people back then, what they mean to us in terms of God, God's kingdom, breaking into their life and breaking into our lives today. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, in today's text, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as Jesus confronts the current day interpretation of the Torah, or the religious law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And... Um, so he teaches all the way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 until he gets to the end of his sermon in Matthew 7. Matthew 7. So go ahead and turn, if you have your Bible, cool, if not, no worries, you can use your phone. I'll have the scripture I'm reading up here, but you can go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 7, 24, and we're going to be in Matthew 7, 24, but um, before we get there, I have a quick question, quick story. Any f- new first-time parents in here today? Like a couple. I mean, I know all of you, okay, so this is a redundant question. Anybody remember being first-time parents? Yeah, there we go, right? Remember when you didn't sleep for five years in a row? That was fun. There you go. Yeah, she remembers. She's like, yeah, I'll never forget that. So I remember being a first-time parent. Uh, We had our our daughter, Harlow, and we brought her home, and I was on pins and needles, right? Like, I think I'm probably an anxious person anyway, but this was like 10, like level 10, next level, right? And every little move, we we put her uh, bassinet, like, next to the couch, and we slept on the couch that night, right? Because I was like, well, we can't go up in bed because... That feels dangerous for some reason, right? I have no idea why. So we slept on the couch, and every little movement that this girl made, I was like, and then I was like putting my hand under her like nose to make sure she was breathing, right? All the stuff that new parents do, but this went on and on, man. Like, I became a really tired and just like anxious, angry kind of dad. So I remember calling my dad one night, and who knows what hour of the day or day it was or how many days I'd gone without sleep or what. Like, I lost track of time. I was just in like the Bermuda Triangle at that point, right? So I called my dad, and I said, Dad, it's Corey. He goes, yeah, I know. What's up, man? <laughs> What's going on? And I said, hey, listen, okay, so when Harlow sleeps, like when she falls asleep, am I also allowed to sleep? He goes, yeah, that's how it's supposed to work, actually. So do you need me to stop? Is everything okay? Are you doing all right, man? I said, yeah, I think I'm just, I just need some sleep. He's like, yeah, you should go to bed right now, okay? Go to bed right now. I remember one of the most challenging nights about a month or two in, I was, I was trying to give Jess a little bit of a break, right? Because first-time moms, like, they just got it bad. It's really tough, right, for them. Dads, I know, right, we kind of have it easy in a sense, but I was trying to give her a break, and I remember, man, that night, um, it was one of the most challenging nights I'll ever remember um, being a parent. First-time dad, right? This was probably a month or two months in, and, and I don't really know if, like, newborns, um, if they have, like, a built-in like mess with your new dad's sleep timer but it really feels like they have like a specific like it's just built in there to wake you up as soon as you fall asleep every time so it was like five or six times right like I had put her down in her little bassinet and it was like 2 a.m. 2 30 2 45 6 whatever right I lost track of time and um I, I put her down in the bassinet and just as soon as like you get to that comfortable spot in your life, or in your, in your in your life, in your bed, when you're just like crashing and the, you have this like warm blanket, I would hear that wailing newborn cry, 
right? Like that wailing newborn cry. So after the fifth or sixth time, like with all the love that I had left in my heart, which wasn't a lot at that point in time, I walked past her crib and took my pillow and walked calmly into the closet and I just like a hundred thousand times just punched the pillow and just punched it and just punched it and punched it and punched it. And I put it over my face when I seemingly had no energy left and I screamed as loud as I possibly could. And then I walked out of the closet like nothing ever happened and I grabbed my child and I said, I love you so much. And she's screaming in my ear and, right. My point here is that parenting is hard. It's really tough, especially for new parents. And, and the thing is like, nobody gives you a warning. Nobody wants to warn you and talk, talk to you about the tough parts of parenting. Everybody is in this elated, really fun stage. You say, oh, we're having kids. And they're like, oh my gosh, your life is going to get so good and so great. You hit the lottery. It's like you won a million dollars. This is so great. I remember when we had our children. Oh man, it was just such, like the most precious and most wonderful time of my whole life. Really? You never had your first UFC fight in the closet alone at 4 a.m.? <laughs> that good, huh? Parenting is that good. I'm kidding, right? I love our kids. I know you love your kids, but it's tough. It is tough. And my whole point um, in sharing this this morning is like, a warning would have been nice. A warning would have been nice. A warning would have even, and, and now, right, looking back, a warning would have even been like a loving thing to do for a new father. Not like out in public, right? But like if my parents or somebody would have pulled me aside and been like, hey, congrats, okay? It's about to get real. Okay, just want to let you know for a couple minutes what's going to happen, right? So I could have at least tried to prepare. My expectation was wildly different, or my experience, excuse me, was wildly different from my expectation. And I prepared. I was like, I know this is going to be hard, right? But I didn't know how hard. So I tell you this story today, right, because it's funny, right? We can laugh at me. I can laugh at being a, a new dad. We can all relate to being new parents. But I mention this because this is exactly what Jesus does for us in this text in Matthew at the end of Sermon on the Mount. He gives us a warning about life and not just about this idea of parenting, right? But something about so much, something so much more important than parenting. We could arguably say parenting for some of us, for most of us, maybe might just be one of the most important things we could ever do or put our hands to in this life. Jesus gives us a warning about something so much more serious and so much more important than just parenting. So if you're there, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he says this. I guess I could read out of my Bible since we're in church. If I could find it, you guys ever have trouble finding stuff? There it is. I haven't marked. So he says this, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So remember, we're in the parables here, okay? So we're in, the, we're in this uh, parable, and the parables are the parables. So we're talking about stuff, but we're also not really talking about stuff, right? They're uh, metaphorically speaking in this case. We're not talking about building a house. We're talking about the lives that we're building, you and I, the lives that we're building while we're here on earth. We're talking about the limited time that you and I have to spend our lives either focused on this one main thing or not this one main thing. What will our lives be about? Will it or will it not be about Jesus? This is the sobering warning from Jesus in this text in Matthew. 
couple thoughts on this. Both men, wise and foolish, they're both building a life. You can't opt out of this build. You can't get out of it. We are required, we are here on this earth together to build these things called lives. You're either building a life on the teachings of Jesus, which he says will stand no matter what comes against them. They will stand. No matter what comes against you will stand. Or you're building a life on something else, which Jesus calls foolish. A fun note here. Fun is maybe not the right word, but it's fun for me. This word foolish in Greek is moras. Uh, it's literally where we get the word moron from. So foolish, moras, moron. Jesus said it. I didn't, right? I'm just telling you what he said. So one man is wise and the other man is foolish. Pick up on this. Both have heard the words of Jesus. One man is wise, one is foolish. Both of them heard what Jesus had to say. The only difference between the two is that the wise man acted on those words and the foolish man did not. Now this ought to spark one of two things in our hearts this morning. It should spark assurance, blessed assurance, right? And those of us who are seriously imperfectly and yet faithfully waking up every single day choosing to walk in the words and in the ways of Jesus, not relying on our own works, that will get us nowhere, but leaning into the effort it takes to be a disciple. It takes effort to be a disciple of Jesus. It is hard work, right? It should also spark a sobering, maybe near heart-stopping feeling in those of us that either do not know Jesus or maybe feel like we know him deeply, actually. And yet when we examine the fruit of our lives, we see little to no resemblance of his character or his will or his ways or the teachings he's laid out. Thought on the wise man. Even though he's building his life doing what Jesus said, he still faces storms and troubles and trials in this life. Just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean we get to opt out of having troubles and problems. In the end, he'll still face the same judgment. He'll still face the same accountability that comes with this life that the foolish man will. They're still going to be judged. They'll still have to face the consequences of what happens in this life. His life does not become easy because of Jesus. Please, please, please mark that down. Take that note. His life does not become easy because of Jesus. In fact, it's actually caused him a lot more work. If you turn um, real quick, you don't have to turn, but if, you, if you're interested, Luke 6, 47, in the first half of verse 48. Same parable. Jesus' words from Luke's perspective here, okay? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. Here's the key. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Digging deep is hard work. Laying a foundation is hard work. So please, be aware of anyone, especially within the church walls, capital C, right? The whole church, globally, everywhere. Like, please be aware of, like, that people would lead you to believe that following Jesus leads to an easy life. Jesus does not promise us an easy life. Following Jesus almost instantly makes things more complex, instantly makes things more challenging. With him or without him, we face nearly all of the same struggles, all of the same problems in life, but it's only with him, only with him that we remain standing in the end. It's the only way to live a life, to build a life that stands in the end. Now, just a little bit of background. I've seen some New Testament scholars in this area of Scripture they point to this, this section as a clear sign that Jesus is talking about Judgment Day. That seems scary a little bit, I'm just going to be honest with you. Others have said, well, maybe it's Judgment Day specifically, but historically, like when we look through the Bible, when we, when we see winds, when we see floods, when we see storms, when we see that sort of thing, like the Bible's referring to the problems we have in this life, right? So I'm going to go out on a limb today and just say that for our discussion here today, 
the context of this, right, the tr- like the translation of this, the interpretation of that particular portion, like doesn't necessarily matter because Jesus's message is still 100% clear. It's still 100% the same. A life built on anything else, anything other than hearing and then acting on the words of Jesus will lead to a great crash in the end. I'm just here to cheer you up this morning. 100%. The odds, the odds are 100% if we do not build our life upon obeying the words of Jesus, will lead to a great crash. Now, in the end, who knows, right? Some of us may experience that crash now. Some of us are crashing now, and that's tough. Some of us are walking through the crash right now, and that is so hard, and it can be so sad and lead to so many, so many tough and challenging things in life. Some of us will experience it now. Some of us may not experience it until Judgment Day. Some of us, and this, we're, we're the worst off of all because we may never experience a crash until the end. We may be building a perfectly well, middle-class, wonderful life, only to find out that we have no foundation in the end. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering warning. It's a sobering feeling. So this seems pretty clear. Listen to Jesus. Do what he says, right? If your parents in the room, you're like, yeah, I've been saying that for like 50 years. Just do what I say, please, right? <laughs> Pretty simple. There's really no greater secret behind this parable, right? It's one of the clearest ones that we have the opportunity to preach on, I, I would say, you know, during this series. It's pretty clear what Jesus is laying out, right? Act on the words I'm, I'm giving you, on the words I'm teaching you, boom. Life doesn't become pain-free, doesn't become problem-free, but you're crash-free in the end. Why do we f- still find ourselves, though, like as disciples of Jesus? Like sometimes, right, we're not perfect, but sometimes like our lives don't reflect his character. We read the words, we hear the words, we know the words, we come to church, and still like there's like not a connection there sometimes. We find ourselves not reflecting Jesus in a way. Or worse, maybe we truly believe that our lives reflect his character, but we've not begun to do the deep digging of apprenticeship to Christ. So today is a day to ask ourselves, what am I building my life upon? What am I building my life upon? Have I simply heard the words of Jesus or, or am I living them? And if this sounds so simple and this warning is so great, like why would I, why would, why would anyone build their life on anything else? Like if this, if this message is so simple, if the warning is so great, if it's so clear, like right here in black and white, like why would we go a different direction? What is so enticing that would make us go in a different direction? And if so, like, what, what is that thing? What is the foundation? Well, the truth is that our hearts may already be set on a different gospel. It's possible that our hearts are 100% set on a different gospel today. It's very hard to obey Jesus if the blueprint of your life is calling for something that his plans are not calling for. You're going against the grain. You're conflicting very hard. Our hearts may already be set on a different gospel. So this is the approach that we find in the foolish builder, second man, the foolish builder. He built differently because he had a different belief in life. He had a different foundation. He had no foundation, but he believed that it was fine to build a home without a solid foundation. He was, maybe he was cool with it, right? Taking a little bit of liberty here today, okay? I'm, I'm looking at the foolish man going like, huh, what, maybe what was he thinking? What was in his head, right? It's a parable, okay? There's no like extra secret message. So Take some liberty here. Think through this with me. So he believed it was fine to build a home without a foundation, or he knew he ought to have a solid foundation, but he decided to have faith that it would work out anyway. 
don't let anybody kid you that we all live our lives by faith. Whether you're a Christian, you're an atheist, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, whatever. Like, you live by faith every day. Or you're just too anxious, you're too busy to just do the hard work of laying the foundation, to do that digging. So he built anyway. Or he thought the sand was just good enough. Everybody else is building on sand, so I, I'm fine. Like, that guy's house is fine. I watched him build it. Like, I'm just good, right? I'm just going to build it. I want to get it up. But I'd say that he constructed his house much more quickly than the wise builder. I think his house went up quicker. I think the walls went up quicker. I think the roof went over quicker. And I think his house was cheaper to build. And I think he built it ahead of schedule because he did not dig the foundation. But I picture him sitting inside his house, just feeling like comfortable, feeling secure, feeling good, feeling like proud of the accomplishment that he, he did building his house. Maybe he's on Instagram, like putting pictures of his house, being like, yo, check this out, right? I got my new kitchenette. It's awesome. I'm happy, right? drinking coffee, reading his favorite book, and he's looking out the window, and he sees this guy in the dirt with a pickaxe just, like, going into the earth deeper and deeper, and he's just like, what is happening? What is this dude doing over here? I don't, like, he, he was just baffled by the wise man, and I wonder sometimes if we have that thought about it other disciples, or if, if people see us that way sometimes, as they look at us trying to live into a faith that just doesn't make sense, that's bewildering, that's baffling, as we fight through the storms, as we fight through the water, as we fight through the rain to get deep enough into the earth to be the people that Jesus is calling us to be. The truth is that the foolish man built a life based on a belief that was just not true. He built his life based on a lie. Jesus was very clear in his other warning Surprise, two warnings. Just a few verses back. So here's what he says in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. Verse 18. A good tree can't, pr a good tree, excuse me, can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. This is a fun verse. I'm being sarcastic. Now, he was speaking of the false prophets in his day, right? This is the, like Jesus was talking to people about these false prophets that appeared to be doing the work of the Lord. They were doing signs and miracles even. They appeared to be like just like Jesus. But really in their hearts, and Jesus knows our hearts, really in their hearts and in their, their lives and the they reflected nothing of his character. They never took a minute to consider and really obey his, his words and his commands. And while we don't know the actual identity, right, there's no specific name for this group of false prophets in this section of the Bible, um, it's clear that false prophets preach and produce false gospels. Jesus issues a warning, right? Like, so it's, it's evident that false gospels are, were active and, and, and uh, happening in that day. Thankfully, Jesus has given us a sustainable, a repeatable approach to identify this stuff the fruit of their lives, the fruit of the movements they generate and grow, the fruit of the lives of the people who follow them. This seems like a hard 90-degree turn. Okay, I'll give you that, right? Like, what are we, I thought we were talking about building houses, and then you said it wasn't a house. We were actually talking about lives, and now you're talking about sheeps and wolves and trees in the fire. What are we doing, right? I mentioned this today because this is still happening today. Right? Seems a little bit cryptic and a little bit like weird to call like false, false gospels and false words. What are you doing? What are we talking about here, right? 
But it happens every time you turn on the TV, every time you pick up your phone. You could believe 100% it happens every time you log on to social media. Every time you wander through a shopping center or a university or even some churches. The world is seeking to form us into its image and its likeness every single day. It's the default discipleship that we all face. If we're not intentional about how we're building our lives, we'll automatically default to building a life on sand. It's just the default. It's automatically going to happen. Why? It's easy. It's so easy. You don't have to do any digging. You just get your stuff and you start building a house, right? So in light of this, I want to share a few observations on our culture. So I have three cultural observations I want to share with you this morning. I have three other cultural observations, but they come specifically from within the church. These are false gospels that I, that I believe that are happening, that are active, that are alive today, that really can convince us to consider something other than Jesus. So pay close attention this morning. See if maybe your heart may be, may be set, maybe not set on a different gospel. See if maybe one of these gospels is leaching its way into the foundation of the life that you're building. Number one, the gospel of hurry or busyness. Gospel of hurry or busyness, where we find ourselves caught in a cycle of overloaded schedules, side hustles, but then the anxious feelings that ensue. I say hurry first because I really do believe this with all my heart. We want what Jesus has for us. We really do. We want the life that he has for us. We want to be transformed into the people he's calling us to be. We want our lives to reflect his character. We want to be genuine. We want to feel peace. We want to feel loved. We want to be a part of the kingdom that is transforming hearts and minds across the world. We want that. But our deepest desires are not always the strongest ones. Our deepest desires are not always the strongest ones. I love the way John Ortberg says this. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. Now, this is the most accessible gospel. This is the most popular gospel today. It's the one in which we can all default to. Even if you're following Jesus, you can default to this gospel of hurriness and busyness and overload. It's the sandiest sand that is out there. If it feels hard to make space for Jesus, you might just be living a life of hurry. Number two, the gospel of information and knowledge. Okay, I'll stop right here. I'm not anti-knowledge. I'm not anti-science. like I'm not anti, right? Like Those all inform Scripture and our walk with Jesus in one way or another at one point in time or another. But this gospel is where we seek to inform or become informed, and yet with all the knowledge and all this information, we still do not transform. We still do not transform into the people we seek to be. Think about all the knowledge available to us today and all the modes and ways in which we receive it. Now think about your parents. Think about their parents. Think about how much knowledge, right, how much information is just double, triple, quadruple, just like generation after generation, right? But think about how hard it is still tra to transform into the person that you seek to be, to the people that we seek to be, to the, to the society that we seek to be. Think about the 24-hour news cycle in this case, and this is still like a new thing for the human race. I know we've all probably grown up with a 24-hour, maybe not actually, but I've grown up with a 24-hour news cycle, right? Just constant, going, going, going. It's not on in my house, but it's going on and on and on. Another bomb hit this place. Another plane flew into this building or this tower. Another car drove into this group of people. Somebody shot this, this school up and this other person did it. It's just over, it's information overload all the time. It's information overload all the time. But guess what? We can do nothing about any of those things. I don't want to be depressing today, right? But like, what am I going to do sitting on my couch at home about all these things happening across the world. Really, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? Most times, this seeks to simply just paralyze us. 
all the information simply just seeks to paralyze us in this specific gospel of information and knowledge. So we shut down. It's a gospel, though, that builds apathy right into our very souls. It's a gospel that's building apathy right into our souls so that when we actually are called to action, we're instantly met with feelings of overwhelming just anxiety and defeat. Oh, I can't do anything anyway, so I, I just, this is just too much. I can't, right? We just live with that constant barrage of information and knowledge. But it's a gospel that tells us that information is enough and action is not required. Third, call, third cultural observation. It's a pretty general one, but the Western gospel, where you and I are to be self-made men and women who go hard-charging into the world to make some money and make a name and make a career for ourselves. We're not familiar with living life under the rule of a king. We're Westerners, individualists, right? I have a 401k to fund. I don't have time for this, okay? We have homes to sell, degrees to attain, ladders to climb, right? I'm not demonizing any of this stuff. This is life, okay? Stuff is necessary. But this gospel would say that these things, right? Build your life on these things only specifically. Go after these things. Focus your life on these things. We ought to do what we think is best, what makes the most logical sense. This gospel would have us convinced that um, our own hard work will save us and free us and make us into the people that we're destined to be. But it never takes into account the kind of person we're becoming along the way. It never takes into account what's happening to our heart and to our soul through that process of building and living. So there's three observations for the culture, three observations from within the church. And remember, these are potentially false gospels that we can be enticed or that may seem like, wow, that, man, that seems easy, that seems good. I should build my life on that. Hear me on this one. If you want to talk after, we can. The gospel of souls. Or this would be what New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls the plan of salvation. This gospel takes the entire gospel of Jesus Christ and it boils it down to the single concept of salvation. Okay, pause. Some people are just like, all right, so you don't believe in salvation then? Is that what you're saying? Or like, is that, it's necessary. It's Jesus, like the amazing grace, right? Like salvation, it's necessary, right? But it takes the entire story, Genesis to Revelation, and it goes, whoop! Salvation. This is the only hanging, most important thing, right? But I love the way that Scott McKnight says it in his book, The King Jesus Gospel. We're tempted, really this is only happening, I don't say only happening in America, but we could also call this the American Gospel. The King Jesus Gospel says this, we are tempted to turn the story of what God is doing in this world through Israel and Jesus Christ into a story about me and my own personal salvation. In other words, the plan has a way of cutting the story from a story about God and God's Messiah and God's people into a story about God and one person, me. And in this, the story shifts from Christ and community to individualism. It's a gospel that says hearing is enough and one that focuses solely again on that amazing grace provided to us of salvation through salvation, but it misses the deep digging of discipleship. It misses the deep digging of being transformed by Jesus Christ in this life, in this life. This gospel is sometimes sold as just a ticket to heaven, right? And yeah, that's true. But we're missing so many things in this life by boiling the gospel down to just this. This gospel makes it hard to say yes to Jesus because it only asks you to say yes to Jesus one time. The gospel of religion, where we're the church and the world is the world but there's really no visible difference between us. 
it's us versus the world and God's probably angry, but we're trying a little bit harder than everyone else. So like, we're going to make it probably, I think, I don't know really, but I think we're going to make it right. We're trying harder. We go there. Going to church becomes our identity or part of our identity. And it's a place where we work to act right based on some set of perceived moral standards that are really coming from our outside culture, right? These things that we feel like we're following some sort of like moral compass that we got to be right. We got to act right. We got to act normal. So we end up building a life being a nominal or cultural or political Christian where Jesus is simply the figurine on the wooden cross, some dusty, churn, dusty corner of the church. And we're really the same people that we were 10 years ago when we first walked into the church building. It's a gospel of religion. Last one, the prosperity gospel. I know this sounds silly, right? Where if you can name it and you can claim it, then it's yours. I share this because this is so popular in the church world. It's so popular. I guess maybe I just hear it often, but your faith in your words have the ultimate life-saving and life-changing power. Your words, not the words of Jesus. And Jesus wants you to be happy and rich, and if you're really living for him, you'll know it because you won't have any problems in this life. Well, that's a lie, because we just talked about it. You will have problems. You will face storms. But if you do have problems, your fault, because you probably have sin in your life. So probably want to deal with that on your own, right? If you want to build a really large church in America, this is the gospel you want to preach. Now hear me. I'm not saying that every large church is preaching a false gospel. I'm not saying every large church is preaching the prosperity gospel, right? But if you wanted to, like, this is the gospel you would want to preach. So don't be fooled in this case by Jesus-y or churchy language. Jesus did not come so that we could have lots of cool stuff and never have any problems. He didn't come so I could upgrade my house and my shoes and my cars every few years. It's not why he's here. It's not why he came. It's the gospel that believes every day that we're just like, God, just give me a breakthrough. Just waiting on a breakthrough. Just waiting on a, waiting on a, and, and you miss him. He's right here, right here, waiting to redeem the broken parts of your life, of my life. He's right here. So there's so many things being spoken today outside and inside the church. They sound positive. They sound helpful. All of them have the power to convince us to take another way. The Apostle Paul mentions a time like this in his own day when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. And I only have like two hours left, so you guys just hang with me. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Man by the name of Glenn Stassen, he was uh, passed away in 2014, but he was an ethicist from Fuller Seminary. And he says the same thing that Paul's saying similarly and closer to our own time. And this was after not one of the, the most recent election cycles, but after a recent election, uh, election cycle. And his kind of life work was on the Sermon of the Mount, right? He was kind of like an expert or a theologian on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, he says this in, in reference to the Sermon on the Mount. All of these teachings mean that we should beware of those who claim to be Christian spokespersons, but whose words tell us to give our loyalty to the ruling powers. They deceive us. We are to beware of those who claim to speak truth, but whose words try to persuade us to serve greed, war, and ethnic division. Beware of those who put before us a corporate brand, or a national flag, or a racial loyalty, or the almighty dollar, 
or an image of our nation that stands for goodness against another nation that stands for evil and inflames us to make war and arouses our passions to serve that image rather than to serve God who is revealed in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Okay, deep breath. This is a lot, I get it, okay? At this point it feels like maybe there's this danger creeping around every corner and like we just don't even have a shot and there's sand everywhere and it's just in my, it's in my shoes and I don't like sand in my shoes and people dressed up like sheep and they're really wolves and that feels weird. Like I don't know what to do with that, right? Maybe you're afraid to have kids because you don't want to be the guy in the closet, in the, you know, like. <laughs> giving you so much bad news this morning, and I'm sorry for that. But I'm also not sorry. Because here's the good news. Jesus is absolutely not looking for perfect people in this case. The good news is that while it feels like our only option is to build life on sand, right? We look out sometimes in our current day, in our current culture, and we're like, I live in the desert, right? There's sand everywhere. It's like our only option, right? Jesus stands up and he reveals that he is immovable, that he is the rock that we are all searching for. Whether we want to admit that we're searching for that or not, right? I'm telling you right now, the thing that you are searching for is the rock in Jesus. And that's the promise that he makes us. Promises a life, although in amidst storm after storm after storm, he promises a life that will not come crashing down. The only guarantee is through Jesus. Life that will not be overcome by whatever this world would send our way. One that may be wind-whipped and scarred, but never crashing down to be washed away in the flood. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you would let me, for a couple more minutes, if, if you're still feeling doubts about taking your entire life and framing it on the foundation of obedience to Jesus, I want to highlight his character for you this morning. I want to highlight the character of Jesus for you this morning because sometimes you, we find ourselves wondering or doubting and whether or not that this is a good idea. It could be that you are just unsure of his intentions for your life. And that's a fair question. That's a fair feeling. That's a fair assumption sometimes. It's impossible to act on someone's words if you don't really w know whether or not you can truly trust them. But in the same vein, once we truly know the character and the intentions of Jesus, it becomes impossible not to go where he leads. When we really know him, it becomes impossible not to follow his path, his way. So we see this in Jesus. We see the character in, uh, the character and the reality of what he's done for us. We see it first and foremost in this. See, the reality of the situation is that we are dead. Dead without him. We are dead without Jesus. Without Jesus, we are hooked and dragged away by a broken world, by foolish ideologies that prop themselves up to be good and proper and helpful and like, you're going to make a lot of money and your life is going to be good. You're going to have everything you dreamed of, right? Like, without Jesus, we are dead. We are fooled. We are tricked. We are dragged away. If we think Jesus dying on the cross seems dramatic or maybe even a little bit overboard, we misunderstand the reality of this life. We misunderstand true reality. His response was appropriate to the problem at hand. A swift, life-saving measure and a selfless death to save us from the great crash in the end. He's also the epitome of unselfishness. I'm sure he could have easily fixed everything from his throne in heaven. He's Jesus. He could do whatever he wants. But what did he do instead? He literally took the hardest possible route 
the hardest possible route to come here to take on our brokenness to be with us. He's the epitome of unselfishness. He left a perfect atmosphere and every comfort in heaven. How unselfish to live with us, to eat with us, to drink with us, to heal our wounds, to embrace us, to be present with us, to teach us. He came to literally charge the gates of hell so that we would never see the finality of death. We deserve none of it, and yet he gave us everything. His baseline demeanor toward us is love and mercy, even as we fumble our way through this life. It's love and mercy even as we continue to stumble and fumble. He's a father on the front porch at two in the morning waiting for his kids to come home from a crazy night of partying. And when they pull in the driveway, they're not met with a, a scowl and yelling, but they see their father rushing off the front porch to embrace them and carry them into the house. Gets me every time. They're met with a warm embrace and a meal and a loving, caring nature of a father. This is Jesus. This is his character. These are his actual, honest-to-God intentions. I wouldn't lie to you. He is always and only good. He's always and only good. Bad things will happen to us in this life. Jesus just said it over and over again. It's not Jesus who brings these things. It's not Jesus who designed these things. It's not Jesus who waves the magic wand and says, be tempted or be, be, be you know, work through this illness now, right? Be tested with this illness. That's not true. That's a lie. That's not Jesus. And yet, it's Jesus who said, I'm with you. Jesus is the friend who says, hey, guess what? Anytime you ever have a problem in your life, call me and I'll be there. Your problems are now my problems, no matter what they are. I want to be in it with you. I am here for you. I'm here with you. He is always and only good. No question about it. We'll position ourselves better to act on his words when we, when we begin to truly know his character or his intentions. We'll know his intentions when we get to know his character. Too often we try to muscle through just like, I just got to be like Jesus and like follow this moral compass and I'll get like, we'll make it. Try to be someone in this world without fully knowing who we are, who he is. I'm going to wrap up here still in, in all of this, right? I want to give you some practical things, okay? Like, I know this can feel heavy. I know this can feel like the foot is on the gas pedal the whole entire time and like good, but also like here are some practical things, right? In the end, it's still up to you. We are all responsible for our, our, our spiritual. We're all responsible for our walk with Jesus individually, okay? But you have to say yes in the end. It's up to you. But I want to give you like four specific things that you can do to position yourself better to say yes, right? Number one, go to sleep at night. Super practical, right? Go to sleep at night, but trust that what God has for us in sleep and in the gift of tomorrow is better than mindlessly and endlessly entertaining ourselves into the night. Going to sleep sometimes is an act of faith. I know that sounds crazy, but it really is. Think about all the best decisions you've made in your life. Were you working on three hours of sleep that day, or no, probably not, right? A rule of life, right? We can call this a rule of life. We can call this living into a rhythm of life, of, you know, specific rhythm or specific rule. Um, it might be setting a bedtime and sticking to it, right? And all the inner child, like all the inner children and in all of us are like, no, like I don't want to go to bed. Set a bedtime and stick to it. Or, um, and this is something I'm doing imperfectly, uh, 
an hour before you go to bed every night, no screens. No screens an hour before bed, no blue light an hour before bed. Same thing when you wake up in the morning. No screens, no blue light. Those hours, those two hours in a day, right, in some way or another belong to abiding in Jesus. Reading scripture, walking, worshiping, watching the sunrise or the sunset, exercising, fishing, sitting outside, praying, drinking coffee, cooking a healthy breakfast. I could go on and on. could be almost everything, but orient it around Jesus. Go to sleep at night. Number two, confront the reality of social media in your life. This is really hard, really unpopular. Confront the reality of social media in your life. It leads to a documented rise in anxiety and an overall decrease in mental health, not to mention the social comparisons that we make to people that we don't even really know. Not to mention the endless hours of our lives just wasting away. And this is the biggest thing. It's the, this is the most constant chirping of the false gospels in our life. If anything has a potential to lead you right off the, the cliff and into the pit, it's social media. You'll believe things that are not true about your life. Okay, a rule of life or a rhythm in this area might look like capping your social media time to 15 to 13 minutes a day. I did the research. The professionals, the experts are saying, yo, 30 minutes you're probably going to be safe. You'll be good if you keep it to 30 minutes a day, right? You could also do like a 30-day break from social media and track your mental health during that time. Or if you have an all-or-nothing personality like myself, and I don't recommend picking this personality if you get to pick. It's not always the most fun. <laughs> but you could take up this, um, you, you could delete your social media accounts like forever, right? Never going back. Burning the bridges, burning the ships, we're done, right? And then you could take up this crazy thing that we call texting or phone conversations with the people that we love and care about. Number three, come to church every week. Come to church every week. I don't want to get too religious up in here today, okay? Like, I don't want to offend anyone, but come to church every week. If anything is going to position you to consistently say yes to Jesus, it's this. If anything, it's, it's this one thing, come to church every week. But a lot of folks in our culture will say that that's such, dude, I could be sleeping in. Did you know that I could be eating brunch instead of sitting in church? Why would I wake up? Why would I get ready? Why would I come to church? I could be sleeping in. I could be watching Netflix. I could be folding laundry. The list goes on forever. Let me say this too. We don't want your money. I feel like I hear that often. Oh, you just want me to come to church because you want my money. No, Jesus wants your heart. Maybe after he, after he gets your heart, maybe he'll want your money. I don't know. Come to church every week. There's no better way to crush the competing voices in our culture than to sit with a dedicated group of imperfect people who are saying, I'm building my life on this foundation. That's it. No questions asked. Last one. All right. I have to say that this is a hard one. And it's hard for me to walk through. But I say it because I love you. Don't try to escape from pain. Don't live a life of escape when it comes to pain. Unfortunately, it's something that will always rear its head in our life. That sucks so much, right? We just want to get away from it. We just want it to be done. We just want it to be over. But don't try to escape from pain. Instead of trying to escape, let pain and the trials of life be an instant reminder to look to and run toward Jesus. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And if I want my life to be anything, like I want it to be that. His book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says this, a common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. Get rid of disappointment by depressing our relationships. And then try to lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. 
pain can push us to a life of escape and make all these other gospels just so enticing because they're easy. They promise us an easy life. Or we can look at pain like a signpost. Every time we feel pain, it's the alarm or it's a signpost saying, hey, this is the way to Jesus. Let pain push you into his arms and not into a life of escape. So friends, it's with the deep love and the caring nature of Jesus. I want want you to ask yourself today, what am I building my life upon? Is it sand? Or is it the rock built on obedience to Christ? Amen.